Welcome to the Paradigm Shift on 4ZZZ 102.1, where we challenge the assumptions of our current society to resist depression and investigate alternative ways of living for a world based on justice, solidarity, and sustainability. Gary and Danami, yes, welcome to the Paradigm Shift. This is Ian. I'll be with you for the next hour. And today's show is about people under occupation. For some some reason, Europeans took over the world. The Spanish and Portuguese invaded Latin America. The Spanish occupied Central America. The English and French took the Great Plains of North America, destroying a great horse and buffalo culture created by Native Americans. The Italians, Dutch, French and English held Africa under colonial rule for generations and imposed apartheid in South Africa, only to be overcome 30 years ago. The Americans and French invaded Indochina, causing much loss of life, and in the end were successful in imposing capitalism in much of the region with giant multinational companies. The British traded with China and held Hong Kong until 20 years ago. They set up the Raj on the subcontinent and caused much bloodshed when independence meant the partition of India and Pakistan, Hindu and Muslim. The Dutch took Indonesia, the Portuguese were in Timor and West Papua. They traded and made money off an impoverished, occupied people. Finally, the British occupied the great Southland, Australia, robbing the oldest civilization on earth of its country, its language and customs. Aboriginal Aboriginal people fought back during the frontier wars and challenged the legal myth of terra nullius and finally won recognition as human beings in the 1967 referendum. They have won native title over lands never ceded in a country where no treaty was ever signed, and that is where we are today. The European legacy is one of language, fatty and sugary foods, and they are still trying to occupy Arab lands in the Middle East, in Palestine through Israeli settlements, in Beirut through French commerce and arms trades, in Syria, Iraq by force of arms, and in Afghanistan, much invaded but never defeated. So what of Australia, its First Nations people? Will a treaty be made? Will it be a model for the rest of the world? Well, that's up to you and, and to me.
That was the original version of Yothu Indi's Treaty and great lyrics there. Uh, Promises can disappear just like writing in the sand. Well, we've got a special guest today. He's a Gurumpul Gumpi man. His name is Dale Rushka. I'll let him introduce himself and he's going to talk about treaty. So let's go to that interview now. Could we start by you introducing yourself by saying who you are and where you're from. My name's Dale Rusker. I'm a First Nations Aboriginal man that lives on Stradbroke Island. I'm a, a, a Gurumpul Guri. I've um, been raised by my Morton family group, who, who are my 
ancestral bloodline group who gives me my connection to this country that I, I reside upon. I have Aboriginal bloodlines that connect me through the Gurumpul as well as the Yagra and through the Andambi, Nunakul people as well. So just so we can unpack that a bit for our audience, firstly, Gurumpul, what does that mean? Gurumpul were the people of the Quampi shell or the Pearl shell of Morton Bay. Now, Gumpi, is that a that is that's a blackfella name for Dunwich, which is on Minjerabar? Yeah, that's right. Gumpi is the, the name, original name of Dunwich, and it's a place where our people had a village that lasted for some time, and when archaeologists surveyed the sites of that area, they concluded that our occupation had been consistent for at least 6,000 years in that one area. And that's why uh, the native title was uh, achieved, was it? Well, native title was achieved because our connection to country was unbroken and our maintenance of tradition and laws was maintained. Could you please give a brief explanation of the history of occupation of your lands by Europeans? Well, European occupation of our, our land here was um, one of the lengthiest in Queensland. This was the, the starting point when the early um, penal colonies were set up for the convicts in Brisbane, um, Strabrack Island was made a, a pilot station and a storehouse for the, all the ships that were coming to uh, Moreton Bay. And that hi history involved a lot of incidents from, firstly, there being major um, conflicts and those conflicts intensified into what we um, view as being wars that were fought here on the island. Um, there were massacres here on Strabroke Island as well as massacres on Morton Island of our people due to our resistance. And after some time in the, the, the first 50 to 70 years of colonial history in this area, which began in 1803 and um, took a, a rapid movement in about the 1820s, um, this inhumane brutality of the treatment of Aboriginal people from in a, in a genocidal sense occurred right up until about the 1870s and there was a mission, or it wasn't a mission, it was established as an Aboriginal labour camp on Stradbroke. But prior to that, about 20 to 30 years earlier, there was the first ever um, religious mission in Australia established here on Stradbroke Island under the Catholics. So for Aboriginal people, that meant that they could obtain a sense of asylum security by being associated to that mission area. So when the labour camp was set up a bit later in 1873, because of what was happening throughout all of South East Queensland from the pastoral movement and the frontier era, uh, many Aboriginal people ended up um, being on Stradbroke Island and the labour camp that was set up comprised of many Aboriginal people from different areas from all around the southern state. Um, more mission become a, an official mission then a bit later in uh, 1893 when the Aboriginal Protection Act was introduced and the policy of the mission, like most people know, was um, pretty brutal and immoral for Aboriginal people. It, it forced us to, to change our, our whole conscious being from our traditional state into the, the form that was being imposed on us as a result of the administration of that time. Um, Myra Mission was, and the protection era was followed by the Aboriginal Assimilation Era. That again, most people should know a lot about that. And we had to obtain permits and that for work, and we had to go through um, declaration processes to declare or 
that we weren't Aboriginal people and that again was another brutal time which led right up until around about the 60s and then we seen the referendum come in in 1967 and quite a lot of the people from here played a big role in the referendum movement and the referendum movement of 67 which gave us citizenship rights was followed by the um, political movement of the land rights era which began with the 1972 10 embassy establishment in Canberra and again Aboriginal people from here played a big role in that and I'd like to name some of those Aboriginal people Yes, um, my grand uncle John Newfong was pivotal, my mother Donna Marie Rusker was pivotal another grand uncle of mine by the name of Dennis Walker was pivotal and a great grand aunt by the name of Kath Walker also played a big role in that era's movement and our people have maintained the principles, or not all of us, but some of us maintained the principles and values of the meaning of that movement right up until this date um, we then seen the land rights era on Stradbroke Island in the 1980s under the Aboriginal Land Rights Act, which we rejected on the basis that we didn't want to receive the crumbs of the table of colonial occupation and that we wanted what was rightfully ours as the original sovereign owners. And not long after that, in the early 90s, we began our claim process parallel to the ending of Mabo where we lodged our notice of intention to claim our lands back on the basis of our original blood inherit sovereign meaning. And that process then was railroaded, as a lot of processes of that time were, uh, by the Native Title Act. And the Native Title Act has been what's uh, the piece of legislation that's been responsible for the administration of Aboriginal rights and the control of Aboriginal people since the consent determination of 2011. And that consent determination, um, some of us chose not to support it and we opposed it and we lodged our objections but the federal court wouldn't um, recognise our objections because we comprised of only a minority and we objected on the grounds that the Native Titles Act was totally unjust and we chose instead to reserve our First Nations sovereign rights as the original people of this land. This story's right, this story's true I would not tell lies to you Like the promises they did not keep And how they fenced us in like sheep Said to us, come take care of him Set us up on mission name Told us to read, to write and pray and they took the children away, took the children away, the children away. Snatched from their mother's breast, said this is for the best, took them away. children away Break 
soothing words of singer-songwriter of First Nations descent, Archie Roach. I'm talking this morning with Dale Rushka, a Gurumpal Gumpy man from Menjerabar, which is Stradi or North Stradbroke Island, and he's talking about people under occupation and where we go with treaty. Let's go back to that interview now. 
You have published a statement called Guri Cry Out for Black Conscience Alert. Why have you done this and what is the audience that you are trying to reach? Well, the audience is Aboriginal people firstly because at the moment I believe and many other Aboriginal, believe, Aboriginal people believe as a result of our experience that as a people we've become um, consciously divided over a, a offence or political and legal morality and many of us know about the fence. We've talked about the fence for many years now and about the people that choose to sit on the fence and um, depending on the opportunities or benefits, um, that determines which side of the fence they actually jump to. Um, with the state of our political and legal being now, the, the fence is actually being crossed and there's two sides of the fence and some sit on one side and some sit on the other and others choose to move in between from one side to the other. And with what's now being proposed, and that, that, that fence and the moral division has been caused as a result of the imposition of legislation and the administration of that legislation, foreign legislation to our original customary and traditional values meaning. Um, but the process that's began this year in Queensland and it's also occurring in other states with regards to treaty and it's the tracks to treaty model here in Queensland which commenced this year and it was all part of the, the NAIDOC theme as well with Voice Treaty Truth. Um, I asked the question about which track will we take as Aboriginal people now with the experiences that we've had throughout history with colonial policy development and the imposition of that policy through legislation and its administration. And with the plans for the progression of treaty, I understand fully that it's a state controlled through federal support, um, federal government support um, process. And what I've seen with native title, I fear that the tracks to treaty process is going to be the same where the solutions are organised in regards to our entitlements as First Nation people but the organisation of those solutions are done on the basis of the paternal administration of government over Aboriginal people to ensure that the power and privileges of state and federal government and common law controls are maintained over that of us as the original First Nations people. So for me, that's a very alarming thing. And as far as the, the voice that's representative of that process goes, well, I question which voice do they want to hear? the voice of the people that have been willing to administer the policy over Aboriginal people and Aboriginal lands on behalf of federal legislation and state government agreements or is it the voice of the Aboriginal people that are not a part of that process that choose to maintain their original customary and traditional values on the basis of their um, blood inherit birthrights. So it raises a lot of alarm straight away with the, the voice. Um, the treaty process that that's questionable because I believe because of what's occurred as a result of colonial history and disbursement and displacement and the genocidal administration of policy that we need to be given the opportunity to reinstate our own meaning and the way we could do that is through be given the opportunity and taking the opportunity to re-treaty amongst ourselves again and to re-implement similar models to that that existed for our people prior to colonial occupation for tens of millenniums. Um, and then we get to the truth side of the process. Like, we know and we, we represent the, the meaning of that simply by wearing shirts. 
and I wear a shirt commonly called Australia has a black history and we all know that the total the full history of Australia has never been told and that the Aboriginal history in this country is a reasonably black one black in the way of our, our, our being and our appearance and our colour but black in the way of um, a, a form of evil that's been incurred as a result of colonial imposition and colonial invasion of our lands and the continued colonial administration and that's alarming to me and I found out just recently at a forum that I'd attended in um, West End and Brisbane that the tracks to treaty process consultation is um, coming to an end and it's expect, expected to end early in the new year so that the actual process of treaty negotiation can occur. For me and many other Aboriginal people, this consultation process is like many others, and I've seen um, neither um, hide nor hair of the Aboriginal people responsible for facilitating these consultations on behalf of government. And that, to me, raises concerns because I think, well, are we going to just be left out of this process? Are we going to be just totally excluded? And is our voice just going to be totally ignored? And are the truths that we want to tell not going to be um, possible to tell because it's going to be based on a, a, a one-sided process. In that statement, you've answered a lot of the questions I was going to ask you, but just uh, I'd like to hone in on a, a few things that you've mentioned there. Uh, the first thing is, uh, as I understand it, the theme of NADOC is voice, treaty, truth, and you've analysed each of those words. Now, of course... There would, there seems to be some words missing there, but you know, like for example, justice. Um, That's right. And and um, now, is it? I'm trying to work out: have the formal negotiations for treaty begun? And and if if so, who, who is it between? Like you mentioned, there maybe the process should be between. First Nations people um, that that they need to have treaty as they presumably had for millennia, um, but who, who is involved in this process of of moving towards treaty or tracks to treaty, as you put it? Yeah, well, tra tracks to treaty is the name of the policy that was um, given by the Queensland government. Um, as far as the negotiations to treaty goes, I'm not really sure at all whether they've actually began, but I know the consultation process over the tracks to treaty proposal is, is in place. Um, I know that they have three consultative com committees set up that are comprised of um, Aboriginal people. I don't know who those Aboriginal people are, um, and I don't know what... Um, perspective of our Aboriginality is being represented in this process. As far as the, the justice side of it goes, well, once upon a time, many of us believed that the um, possibility of justice was going to occur as a result of the Native Title Act and the recognition of our rights through the Native Title process. Some of us, and um, myself and my Morton family group, I was the original applicant for the Quantumooka Claims, but due to our realisation and understanding as a result of being involved in process that the Native Title Act was unjust, 
we chose to remove or attempt to remove ourselves from the native title claimant group and myself as the native title applicant in 2004. Um, now I fear that the treaty process will be very similar to that of native title and the form that it will take will ensure that colonial power, power and privilege will be maintained and that Aboriginal rights will be dealt with in a paternalistic um, manner where we're only given what the government of Australia is willing to recognise as being necessary for us. And um, throughout this year, a very important um, realisation was made and that realisation was made public by uh, Australia's first Aboriginal senior counsel by the name of Tony McAvoy in relation to the response over the Adani Carmichael uh, mine, uh, coal mines proposal on behalf of the Wangan and the Jangalingu people. And Tony McAvoy was also a barrister operating for the original Quandamooka native title claims that played a major part in reaching consent determination. And Tony McAvoy came out this year and stated that the Native Title Act was embedded in racism and it, in, in it coerced Aboriginal people through Indigenous land use agreements into accepting discriminatory outcomes. Well, that was a very big statement and the fact that he recognised coercion was a big point to recognise and I wonder now with this process that's occurring whether the government is using coercion again the same way as they've done with native title and they've done it well and truly in many communities and I see it right here on Stroboke Island and if coercion is going to be the means of the process's um, development well straight away it represents a, a process of injustice to me and justice to me represents full and proper justice where Aboriginal people's First Nation rights and their ancient sovereignty that existed for tens of millenniums as independent nations of this land is recognised fully and that we have full legal recognition as the original First Nations people. And with that recognition, the right to be in full control of our lands, of all the resources and of our lands and um, the, 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 the future destiny of ourselves and the future generations of our people.
those were the Lisa Mitchell, Ginger and the Ghost, and the Camp Binby Choir with the song Love in Action. Sounds like it was there on the, the camp, which is trying to stop the coal trains from going through. Uh, that, uh, that was put together by the campfire. Okay, this is the Paradigm Shift. We're 25 minutes to one. You're on Community Radio for Triple Z. 102.1, and we are talking with a Gurumpul Gumpi man from Menjeriba, which is Stradi, North Stradbroke Island, Dale Rushka, and he has issued a paper which is called Guri Cry Out for Black Conscience Alert, Voice Treaty Truth, and he is speaking to that paper now in an interview with me conducted earlier this morning. Let's go back to it. In the Yothu Yindi Song Treaty, it says promises can disappear like writing in the sand. Now, this could be said, as you've outlined, of, of, the, of land rights. You know, why would treaty between Aboriginal people and the Australian parliaments be any different? How can it be made different to the native title process which vetoes Aboriginal claims over mining? That's right. That's right. And if we look at previous policies of colonial administration, one of the policies that they had was actually putting into effect the shifting of our morality as Aboriginal people and the meaning of our being as First Nation sovereign owners, and that was the Assimilation Act. And we know that that act was abolished in the 60s, but I believe that the act then took new forms and one of the first forms it took was the Native Title Act. And it's, I have great fears that the treaty process will be similar and it's a hidden form of assimilation. And if we look at what's actually occurred to date, our people have quite easily and willingly taken on the responsibilities of the roles and meaning of Native Title to the point where they become responsible for the administration of their rights and their native title meaning over the land and over the other Aboriginal people as well. And their representation isn't from the full basis of First Nations sovereign originality. It's from the basis of what's being determined through the native title process and the rights that the federal government and the federal courts are willing to recognise. So to me, I question whether that is another form of policy and if our people are actually allowing ourselves to become the byproducts of colonial assimilation. And if that is the case, as we go through future history, we may see ourselves, because of the processes that administer this country being democracy based on majorities entitlements, being more or less assimilated through the use of policy right out of existence. At Nuremberg in 1947, the Nazis were tried for the slaughter of Polish and Jewish people. In your paper, you say that the colonial policy in Australia was genocide. Now, the indictment at Nuremberg cited genocide as one of the offences. How do you see reconciliation and justice being achieved by Aboriginal people? Well, firstly, truth of history has to be recognised. 
and the fact that the first policies in Australia that existed for Aboriginal people in common law allowed for the facilitation of genocide. And from my understanding, from learning, uh, the first policy that existed was under the Mineral and Fossicking Act in the early 1800s. And it was written in there, and it was the first references made to Aboriginal people um, following the lie of Captain Cook and his proclamation of Terra Nullius, um, that when the colonial explorers or settlers were out looking for leasehold lands, if they come across a group of Aboriginals, they had the legal right to disperse them with the use of firearms before they negotiated with them. And dispersal, to me, from what I understand and from what I've learned, involved the massacre of tribes. And that sort of inhumane treatment occurred for at least 60 to 70 years here in southeast Queensland alone, where many thousands of Aboriginal people were exterminated totally from their lands. Whole tribes, in some cases, were exterminated. And if that's not a policy of genocide and a truth that needs to be told, well, what importance does truth has, have? Well, my own ancestors who settled in the north, in, up in the Gulf, on the Ennisley River, they were engaged in dispersal actions against Aboriginal people who lived around that area, the Kukuyalanji, the Kara, the um, numerous tribes. So, and that's found in their own accounts of their squatting in North Queensland. So it's not disputed really in, in many of the written texts of, um, and, and my family was no different to a lot of other Europeans. You know, they, they tell their own stories and okay, they're coy about it sometimes. Like my grandfather, when he wrote his memoir, he never really said what happened after, you know, at the end of the process when they chased the blacks um, who maybe had scored uh, one of their, their um, uh, you know, one of their cattle or something like that. They, he doesn't ever really say what happens at the end. But in the case of um, one of my uncles, that great, great uncle, he definitely is singled out as being one of the murderers of um, five black people. And um, it's in all of the accounts. So we know that there was murder. Um, now, genocide is when it's aimed to crush a whole people. And um, that's what happened at Nuremberg. They had to make the case, you know, that the Nazis were setting about to wipe out a whole people. Um, now that that would be that would have to that would be a, a very difficult process, wouldn't it? In South Africa, they had truth and reconciliation. What do you see yeah, as it happening would be here? Difficult, but in reality, us being comprised of not just one nation of Aboriginal people, but many nations under uh, many different language groups, some of those many nations have actually been exterminated and wiped out totally. So it has actually occurred here in this country. And with the policy of genocide, it doesn't just relate to the uh, original inhumane actions that occurred, um, not just within your family groups, but within many first colonial groups in this country. It, it follows on in the policies and how those policies are administered or how those policies are firstly developed and then how they are administered upon us. And if you look at those policies and what the effects of those policies um, have been already to date, 
and starting from that original inhumane brutality, Aboriginal people have become very um, traumatised and Aboriginal people actually um, inherit post-traumatic stress disorders as a result of this treatment. And if we look at the policies now that are becoming to, to play in law, they're all about um, more or less demoralising the original meaning of ourselves as the original First Nations people and forcing us to become the type of Indigenous people that this country, Australia, and its governments and its policies and its citizens are willing to accept. And this all began, this whole process began when Captain Cook put the flag in the ground on behalf of the Crown and claimed that the land was terra nullius. And that then more or less effectively um, implemented a process of human denial where our being and our meaning as the original First Nations ancient owners of this land was just totally disregarded. And then if we even look at the address of Mabo and what Mabo actually proved in the High Court of Australia, the highest jurisdiction of law in this land, recognised that Captain Cook's proclamation of Terra Nullius was a lie. Therefore, from my point of view and many other Aboriginal people's point of view, um, that recognition of that proclamation being a lie put a question mark up over the validity of all common law that has been that had been established after because Cook's proclamation was the basis and the foundation of common law's beginning. Brandon! Out of court! Brandon! Out of court!
That was Coloured Stone with Black Boy, where in an interview with Dale Rushka, a grumple gumpy man who is talking about treaty, let's go back to it now. You're on the paradigm shift. It's coming up for 10 minutes to one. In your statement, you say some of our people have a sovereignty fixation, that sovereignty can never be real or we're never going to see a treaty that properly protects the interests of Aboriginals in this country. Now, if we shake the sovereignty tree, what is going to fall to Aboriginal people? Yeah, these are comments that have been made by Aboriginal people themselves towards people like myself. And these comments come from Aboriginal people that are within the organisations or the prescribed body corporates, uh, the Aboriginal people that believe and promote that when the state government gives us a window of opportunity, we should jump through that window and take what we can get because they might not, might not give it to us again. And uh, as far as our sovereignty goes, it's a moral meaning and a moral being that a lot of us accept and a lot of us uh, value. And it's based on the fact that regardless of the treatments that have occurred throughout colonial history, through legislative administration, our ancestors and ourselves have never ever ceded our original First Nation blood and her um, sovereign meaning. Now, and it's also a good example of the fence that I referred to earlier and the doubt that has been cast over many Aboriginal people's belief in their meaning and their willingness to accept that the only meaning they can have comes from legislative forms that gives them rights and rights entitlements. Um, I just want to put this to you to see what you think about this because my thinking on it is not very clear and that is that white fellas in this country, they have their own problem with sovereignty. Um, for example, in the, uh, the, the 1990s and leading up to the, the millennium, uh, uh, Australians pushed for a republic and it took, they were divided over what form it should take and in the end the referendum was defeated because of that division. Um, in other words, they wanted a republic that separated Australia away from the Queen, who's, you know, our sovereign at the moment. Now, last night on ABC Radio, uh, Marcia Langton raised this question of the Republic and she said it's very, it's a very difficult question for Aboriginal people, that whole process of the push towards a Republic. And she said one of the reasons why it's such a bad omen for us is that one of the people who was put up in those in the in the late 1990s as a possible president of the republic was Pauline Hanson and and so how how do we overcome um, you know the these institutions that can they they can take us in very bad directions you know towards even greater racism and greater subservience whether it be to the Queen or whether it be to the United States, um, to these powerful nations that Australia is not one of those superpowers. That's right. And 
if we look at the um, objectives of um, Australia's citizens to become a republic and how they will maintain their role through their democracy, that to me is not really an Aboriginal issue. That is an issue of that democracy and its constituents. For me, and for many other Aboriginal people like myself, we question and challenge the whole validity of colonial sovereignty over our lands here in this country that's got the name now as being Australia. Um, we believe that our ancient being and our ancient meaning from our customs and our law is far greater than the sovereign powers of the colony and that our ancient sovereignty as the original owners needs to challenge the validity of colonial sovereignty first in relation to who are the rightful and truthful owners of this land or the lands that we now know as being Australia. As for the Republican issue, if that first issue can be addressed through a proper, fair and equitable process of justice, and for myself, I believe it can't occur within the uh, judicial systems of Australian law and Australian legal processes, that it's got to occur independently through a body similar to the International Court of Justice so that it can be fair. Um, if that process can be fair and if the outcome can be resolved that recognises that the ancient occupants of this land were the original First Nations people and through their law and customs they were able to enjoy exclusive ownership and occupation of their place for tens of millenniums prior to colonialism's beginning then a process of deciding what sort of model or structure this country and its, its systems of law and democracy might be able to take. But if the Republican push occurs before that issue is resolved, then it's going to be no different to the models that are currently existing here, apart from it being a breakaway model from that of the um, crown and its systems of sovereignty and models of democracy. You mentioned there the International Court of Justice, um, which of course is in The Hague in, in uh, the Netherlands. Now recently, only two weeks ago, um, one of the African countries, Ghana, took um, the, the, the the leader of the of Burma, that's Aung San Suu Kyi, to the International Court because of the genocide of the Rohingya people that fall within the boundaries of her country, now called Myanmar. And they those people were indigenous to what is known as the Arkan, the Arakan area. Now, in that International Court of Justice, there they gave Aung San Suu Kyi uh, the opportunity to um, to challenge or to uh, to respond to the the case that was put by Ghana, and she just said, "Well, it doesn't really apply to us because these people um, they don't really come from our country at all, and 
we're not, you know, we're not subject to um, the, uh, the the power of this court. You know, like she said, all, all of the decisions relating to our country will be made inside our country. Now, she was held up as an icon of of democracy, that woman, in her fight with her own military. Um, but now, there she is, she's saying, well, we just won't even recognise the International Court of Justice. Can't Australian parliaments just do the same thing? Well, it's very likely that they will. And um, considering the attitude of Australians and the state of denial that's existed now for many um, decades, um, it is a great possibility. And uh, for many of our Aboriginal people, it may also be a big issue as well because of what's already occurred in what they believe to be and what I say is how they've been coerced into accepting their form and their place as Australians they may share the same opinion. And a big question I raise, and it's a question that I didn't create, it's a question I heard as a, as a young man, which was stated by an, another very prominent Aboriginal man uh, from that time by the name of Michael Mansell, and he raised the question as to what are we? Are we Aboriginal Australians or are we Australia's Aborigines? And if we're Aboriginal Australians, then there's no problem at all with what's occurring in Australia because we're just 3% of the, the democratic population. And no matter how we're treated and um, the results of that treatment, and if we look around, we see all of the problems that exist as a result of its administ colonial administration. Um, well, as Aboriginal Australians, then it's all fair and it's all okay because... We just accept it. But if we're Australia's Aborigines, the First Nations people, the ones that retain the moral principles and values of our original meaning through our blood and inherent right from our ancient ancestors, then there's a lot of injustice that needs to be resolved prior to anything else occurring and any other progressions taking place. Uh, thanks very much for your thoughts. Um, I wonder if there's anything you'd like to add. Um, well, following this process of this year's um, NAIDOC team and the um, commitments that have been made by governments to attempt to move towards justice through things like tracks to treaty or voice treaty truth, I think Aboriginal people need to, like I said, um, become alarmed in their conscience because we need to decide which track are we going to take and whether we're going to allow ourselves to just be assimilated fully into this process and structure of colonial law and colonial administration or whether we're going to step back and start to value the importance of and represent the meaning of our original First Nations meaning. And I've heard just recently that next year's NAIDOC theme is going to be, always was, and always will be. So in saying that, for us, we say Aboriginal land and Aboriginal people always was and always will be. 
But in this new context of time following voice treaty truth, uh, we're going to be saying, as Aboriginal Australians, always was, always will be, and that we'll always be Australians, and that we will always be a part of the Australian system of democracy. And to me, that doesn't represent justice. Yes, that was Dale Rushka, who's a Gorampool uh, Guri, who has issued a, a statement which you can read on the, uh, the the Workers' Bush Telegraph. It's under the title, um, A uh, Guri Cry Out um, for Black Conscience and under the theme of uh, NADOC. So that's it for the show this week. Uh, Sean is next door tune, getting ready. So we're just going to go out with the song that really should be the national anthem of Australia. It's the Warumpi Band's Blackfella, Whitefella. See you next week.
102.1 FM.